Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachar Rosh Hashanah, daf tet, page nine. So, I have, I think there's something very interesting on this daf, which is a discussion of something that we do basically every week when we bring in Shabbat a little bit early, which includes the 18 minutes, but it's also the concept of starting Shabbat a little bit early. And then at the end of Shabbat, we tag on and a little bit of extra time as well. And this is called Mosifin Michol El HaKodesh, right? This idea that we're going to add on from the regular time or the profane time, mundane time, whatever you want to call it, we're going to add on, and in this case, or most case, I think really, on both ends to the time that is holy, so that the there's a little bit of spillover from the Kodesh, from the holy time into the regular time. So the Gemara is not talking about Shabbat in this case, but the concept is there. So there's been a longer discussion about a, of a Yovel year, Yardena. I know you're going to talk about that shortly. Um, but in this case, it says, the Gemara says, where do we get this idea? Minalan. Where do we get this principle that we're going to um, add from the profane or or mundane, whatever the regular time to the sec to the to the holy time on both ends. Detanya. So the Gemara brings a brayta. It says becharisha v'katzir tishbot. Um, the plowing and the harvesting, you shall rest. Tishbot, like Shabbat, you take a rest. This is a verse from Shmot, chapter Lamadalad, Exodus 34. And Rabbi Kiva, well, I'll just read it. Rabbi Kiva Omer, You don't have to use this verse to teach you the phenomenon of letting the land lie fallow, that is the Shemitah year, that is the sabbatical year. That we're in right now, of course. Um, Rabbi Kiva says there's another verse in Leviticus 25 that says you should not um, plant your field. And that is the verse that teaches Shemitah, the phenomenon of the sabbatical year. So there's a really important principle, which I think maybe we haven't even discussed at all, although it certainly must have come up kind of behind the scenes, is that there's once you have a biblical verse, let me say this differently. There's no, you don't need two verses, two biblical verses to teach the same one thing. Once you've got one biblical verse teaching that same one thing, you wouldn't use, you would not have any understanding of another biblical verse to teach that same thing. You're going to learn something extra or or different, or even sometimes argumentative, right out of it. So the it's a when I say you, the we're here talking about the Chazal Chazal's basic understanding of how the written Torah is understood and interpreted via the oral Torah. So for Rabbi Kiva, the moment we've got the verse Sadchelo Tizra, you don't plant your field. And that's going to teach the Shnat Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Then the fact that there's another verse that says, that you're going to rest or stop, right? Plowing and harvesting. It has to mean something other than just basically teaching the very phenomenon of the sabbatical year. Ella, Harish shall erev shviit, anichnas l'shviit, v'katsir shall shviit ayotzei l'motzei So rather, he says, what this means is the Harish the plowing is in the sixth year going into the seventh year, meaning we stop plowing a bit before, we've talked about this already, we stop plowing a bit before it actually becomes the seventh year, what we would call in the sixth year. 
right? We stop plowing however many months in advance. And then we we don't harvest um, from in the eighth year, at the end of the sabbatical year, right away either. And therefore, there's a fulfillment of this verse, um, which fundamentally adds on to the Kodesh, right? It's the Kodesh time is the year of Shemitah, and then we add on from the regular time, which is the sixth year and the eighth year, to extend uh, the the sanctity of that time in both directions. The Breitza continues, Rabbi Shmuel Omer, Macharish Rashut, Af Ketzir Rashut. So Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Kiva very often uh, approach biblical verses differently, to learn differently from them. And here, Rabbi Shmuel is going to say, no, no, we're going to take that verse and understand something different from it. Namely, the same way that plowing is optional, so too harvesting is optional. Meaning, the claim here is not that it's going to be the sabbatical year, but the issue of um, basically you've got two two malachot here, right? You have two um, harish and katsir are both prohibited on Shabbat. And the idea here is that the same way that plowing and harvesting, right, are technically going to be voluntary acts, right? They're an optional thing to do. You're not required to do it from the Torah. You might need to do it for food, but it's not a requirement from the Torah. So then the fact that the harvesting is prohibited during the year of Shemitah, you're still prohibiting the voluntary harvesting. And then the Gemara continues here, or the Breitah that it cites, uh, Yatsa to exclude Ketzir HaOmer Shehu Mitzvah. This is going to exclude the harvesting of the Omer, of the grain, of the... the is what is used for the Korban Omer, uh, which is itself a mitzvah, meaning, and that is a requirement from the Torah. So then the point here that Rabbi Shmuel is making is that you need this verse to teach you that you, not only can you, but you ought to, I suppose, um, harvest the Omer even during the Shnat Shemitah. Okay, so that's Rabbi Akiva uses the verse to mean the add-on to of holy of holiness within the regular time, and Rabbi Shmuel uses the verse to teach um, the requirement to bring the carbon omer to to harvest the grain for the carbon omer. But now we've got an issue, which is if we say that the biblical verses are each only ever used for one thing, the things that they're used for still need to be learned from somewhere else. Meaning this concept of being mosif of adding. Kodesh to Chol, uh, from the Chol, that you're adding this, the holy time into the, into the non-holy time is a principle that Rabbi Shemal may not use this verse to teach that, but he's got to get it from somewhere. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Shemal, Mosifin Kodesh where does he get this? How does he learn, or from where does he learn, that we do indeed extend the, whole, the holy time into the regular time? So he understands it from a discussion of Tisha of of Yom Kippur that we it says the verse on the teachers about Yom Kippur says you will afflict your souls on the ninth on the ninth right Yachol Betisha are we really talking about the ninth Talmud Lomar Be'erev so the the Gemara says we're not talking about the entirety of the month of I'm sorry, the entirety of the day of the ninth, rather in the evening 
If we're talking about the evening, does that mean that from when it gets dark? So the the conclusion here is the Gemara's conclusion here is that we're talking about the ninth, <coughs> not where, where you're still in the ninth, meaning not at the end of the ninth when it's already the tenth and it's gotten dark. But rather, you know, earlier in the day, said, and how is that going to be manifest? How do we add in that time? You start fasting when it's still daytime, when it's still daylight, which of course is what we do. Meaning, the the it's not noon. Obviously, it's not that the sun is high in the sky, but we do have a little bit of time when it is still daylight out um, before before it really kicks in to be twilight. Um, when we're already fasting on Yom Kippur, on it's Erev Yom Kippur going into Yom Kippur, so that's exactly that. Excuse me, So that's where we learn that, or or there's an example there of um, adding from extending the sanctity to the time that was not yet that's regular time. Now. The point here, then, is that Rabbi Ishmael is using a different biblical verse, a different halachic case, to get to this point of extending the time, extending the holy time. So the Gemara goes on to discuss a little bit more about this Yom Kippur and, and how it all applies. But what I found to be interesting here, besides the fact that I, I think the very important um, element of the different members of Chazal using biblical verses to understand or interpret different halachot and then still having to relate back to the other halachot. Um, besides that, I think it's just an interesting and important concept that we take from the, that we take from the Kodesh, that we take from the sanctity, the sanctified time and extend it into the regular time. There's this idea that we should have a little bit more of that sanctified time in our approach to the time that is, you know, that much more of an intense sanctified time. For example, Shemitah, right? The fact that we have a little bit of the Shemitah, meaning don't do the harvesting and then don't uh, do not do the plowing and then don't do the harvesting on either end. Or Yom Kippur, the fact that we start a little bit earlier, we extend a little bit later. Or as I said to begin with, even though it's not here, um, the very concept of having a little bit of an extra time around surrounding Shabbat uh, that says we're not do all of it to me suggests we're not coming to do to this to do the bare minimum from the second that we get to um to the holy time to the until the last second when it's absolutely required we add to it which gives us a little bit of like it's a little bit of a cushion, but it also says like we care enough about this holy time. I mean, the implication is I don't mean it's literal that we care enough about this holy time that we're not going to do the bare minimum. We're going to extend that time and bring that extra kedusha into the way we keep these mitzvot. This is one of those passages that's interesting to see because it really is teaching us a lot about Yom Kippur. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think a little piece of this was actually in Masachet Yoma, but this whole thing about the ninth and the tenth and the fasting, uh, it, you know, it just seems it's much more elaborate here than I think it ever did appear in Yoma. But I have to look it up, and I didn't really look it up, but uh, it, it's just interesting to see again how they got to this. I want to move on to the next topic that appears um, on Amud Bet, which is this discussion about this world Yovel Ki Tanur Abanan Yovel Ki. 
right? So they're quoting this Pesuk from Vayikra chapter 25, verse 10. And they basically present three opinions here about what is the fact that it's a Yovel He, right? It is the Yovel. What does it actually teach us? So the first opinion they have is the one of Rabbi Yehuda. So Rabbi Yehuda teaches that let's say at when it, the Yovel year starts, let's say that people didn't release their property to the original owners, which is one of the things that happens on a Yovel year, right? If you purchase property, it goes back to its original owner. They didn't blow the shofar, which was a way to signify when the Yovel started. And finally, that they didn't free the slaves, right? They didn't do all those things that it was supposed to happen during the Yovel year. Because it says, Yovel he, Rabbi Yehuda learns that, you know, that that still, you know, it's still going to be a Yovel year. And that what essentially he learns here is that one of these halachot has to happen, right? It has to be observed in order for it to be a Yovel year. So yes, you have these three essential things, but according to Rabbi Yehuda, at least one of them has to happen. Rabbi Yossi Omer, Yovel he, Afalpi Shalosh Shamtu, Afalpi Shalosh Shilchu, so Rabbi Yossi says, what does Yovel he mean? Even if they don't release the property, and let's say they didn't even free the slaves, it's still going to be a Yovel year. Now, you might have also thought that maybe it's that they didn't sound the shofar, it would be a Yovel year. Therefore, it says Yovel he. So according to Rabbi Yossi, he says the shofar actually has to be sounded. So they're saying something a little bit different here. Everybody acknowledges sort of the three activities that has to happen during Yovel. But according to Rabbi Yehuda, just one of those things has to happen, whether it's the property, the slaves, or the shofar to signify the beginning of the Yovel year. According to Rabbi Yossi, it has to be the blowing of the shofar. If you don't have the blowing of the shofar, then you have a problem. Right. And so then they go through a little bit here about, you know, how did they get to that opinion exactly? Um, and then they also, so I'm going to skip that next part, right? Like how do they, you know, uh, is the, is the verse meant to exclude or does it include? And then they finally go on to say, So when they're talking about the sounding of the shofar that Rabbi Yossi was talking about, right? That's actually a job of the court, but the the issue about the freeing of the slaves, that's not a job that's for the court. In other words, that was up to the individual slave owner. So therefore, what it means is it's the thing that the court had to do, that was what was indispensable, but not necessarily what the individual had to do. And that's how Rabbi Yossi sort of gets to his opinion. So I think we're adding another element here, which is not just what are the essential pieces to the Yovel year and this machlokas between Rabbi Yud and Rabbi Yossi, but also recognizing that some of those functions maybe were done by the people, some of them were done by the Bezdin. And then it goes on to say again, my davar cher, why, wh- again, what, what, what do we have this thing about Rabbi Yossi with this davar cher? Right? Maybe you could say, right, maybe you need to have this explanation because you might say, right, it's impossible that there wouldn't be at least one slave owner somewhere in the world. In other words, of course, there had to be a slave that needed to be set free. But you could say that this sounding of the shofar is giving over to the court and the setting of the slaves being free is not given over to the court. Now, 
The Gemara again then diverts, uh, you know, wants to think a little bit about why they explain why Rabbi Yehuda has his reasoning. Then they want to explain why, sorry, Rabbi Yossi has his reasoning. Then they want to explain why Rabbi Yossi has his, uh, Rabbi Yehuda, excuse me, has his reasoning. And they base it on this pasuk, Maitama, right? Ella um, Rabbi Yehuda, Maitama. What's the reason for Rabbi Yehuda? Amarkra, Ukratam Droba Aretz, right? So the pasuk says, Right, that you need to proclaim dror, right, liberty or freedom throughout the land. Right, and so Rabbi Yehuda holds that the verse has to be explained by what was in the preceding clause, and not by what was in the, but not in reference to the clause before it. So, in other words. Therefore, the exclusion, right, implied by having this word, yovel he, is it has to refer to what's immediately preceding it. And what immediately precedes it? This thing about the drawer, right? It comes before that you're going to proclaim drawer. And what does that refer to? That specifically refers to the emancipation of slaves. And it's now referring to what's stated in a clause before that, which is on Yom Kippur, you will sound the shofar. So in other words, Rabbi Yehuda is basically saying, you can't say that it's the shofar that's required because that sort of goes two clauses back to Yovel He. And so therefore, it just needs to be one of the three, but it doesn't need to be specifically the shofar. And then finally goes to Dechule Amai Dror, Lashon Chayrut. Everybody agrees that Dror means liberty, right? My um, Mashpam, what do we learn from that? Titania, now they're going to quote another bright set here. Dror has to mean some type of liberty of freedom. Right, so Rabbi Yudah says, what does it mean, Dror? It has to mean a man who's dwelling, who dwells in any dwelling, right? Who can move merchandise around. That's what a free person is. A person who lives where he wants, who's living basically where he wants to live and can do business wherever he wants. And then finally, we have Amar Rabbi Chiyabar Abar Amar Rabbi Yochanan Zodi Vrei Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Yosi. Okay, we explain what Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yosi said. The Chachamim hold that you actually have to have all three of these for the Yovel year. Kisavri Mikra Nidrash Lefanav Vilefanav Panav Ula Acharav. Right, because they hold that the verse of Yovel He you interpret it by using the clause before, right? And right, which refers to the 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 slaves, and the clause before that, which referred to the shofar. So I think what's interesting here is to see we have these three different opinions. Each of them have different requirements for what you need for the yovel year, but it's not because of a fundamental difference of understanding about yovel. It's because of a fundamental difference of understanding of what's the correct way to interpret those pesukim. And so I think this passage really drives home the importance of Midrash Halakha. That here, you know, sometimes we've had examples of Midrash Halakha where we sort of said, like, they know the Halakha and they're sort of looking at the Pesukim and you sort of have this chicken and egg question. Did they really learn it because of the Pesuk or did they have a notion and then they sort of went to the Pesuk and try to, you know, stick it in? Here I think we see that, no, these three different opinions really develop based upon how you actually do uh, interpretation of these psukim itself. And so I think this is a really nice example of the importance of Midrash Halakha 
and that based on your Midrash Halacha, you're actually going to get to a different interpretation. And then finally, this section concludes, that finally, because it says Yovel, right, which seems to be, an, you know, an inclusionary term, right, that it seems to teach us that even outside of Eretz Yisrael, the Halachot of Yovel count. So what this teaches us is, is that, right, so, sorry, so then the Gemara basically saying, wait, but it says Ba'aretz, right? So that would seem to be only in Eretz Yisrael. And what it's saying is, no, whatever happens in Eretz Yisrael, whatever liberation, right, happens in Eretz Yisrael, also, right, no heg bechutzal arts. Also, seven outside of Eretz Yisrael. Bizman she not no heg bechutzal arts, no no heg bechutzal arts. But if it's not happening in Eretz Yisrael, it doesn't happen outside Eretz Yisrael. So basically, what we're learning is some of these halachot of Yovel they apply outside of Eretz Yisrael, but that's only the case if they're actually functioning in Eretz Yisrael itself. So basically, I think what that implies is that if you have a situation where, you know. I don't know, there's really no Jews, nothing is happening inside Eretz Yisrael. Yovel doesn't really, it, 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 that piece is not going to have an outside of Eretz Yisrael. But as long as some of that activity can take place inside Eretz Yisrael, it's also going to apply outside Eretz Yisrael. So I think it's also interesting to see that Yovel, which is so connected to Shemitah and agricultural law, is one of these things that does apply outside of Eretz Yisrael. So, you know, very interesting passage, which I think underscores the importance of Midrash Halakha and shows us how Midrash Halakha can really lead to different conclusions. And finally, you know, teaching us here some of the interesting halachot about Yovel, right? These three components of Yovel, whether it's freeing of the slaves, the blowing of the shofar, or returning of the property. And finally, this last piece, what parts of Yovel and under what circumstances also take place outside of, uh, outside of Eretz Yisrael as well. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this DAF. Uh, thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.